Chapter 10 of Brown Book of the Hitler Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Thomas. Brown Book of the Hitler Terror by Lord Marley. Chapter 10 Murder. Murder stalks through Germany. Mutilated corpses are carried out of Nazi barracks. The bodies of people disfigured beyond recognition are found in the woods. Corpses drift down the rivers. Unknown dead lie in the mortuaries. During the World War, lists were published of those who were killed. The lists were even exchanged between enemy governments. The Hitler government is naturally not so liberal as to publish the list of all its victims. Only a small number of the murders ever appear in the press, and then in the form of shot while trying to escape or in some similar lying form. And if anyone were to try to get at the truth, he would suffer the same fate, torture and death. On March 22nd, a general amnesty was proclaimed for all criminal acts committed in the fight for the national revolution. This general amnesty is a license for all past and future murders. Hitler's Comrades of Potemper there is no complete list of the victims of Nazi knives and bullets, even in the months preceding Hitler's entry into the government. Certainly there must have been many hundreds murdered. Social Democrats, Communists and members of the Catholic parties, as well as non-party workers. A wave of murderous attacks on Social Democrats, Communists and members of the Democratic parties developed in the first half of August 1932. In many towns these occurred on the same day, showing clearly that they were organised. In January 1933, under the Schleicher government, the number of crimes of violence perpetrated by National Socialists rose very rapidly, and after Hitler became Chancellor, they increased from day to day. In the first half of February, 27 working men and women were murdered by Nazi stormtroops. The most notorious case in the summer of 1932 was the murder of a worker in Potempa, a village in Upper Silesia. A murder gang of Nazis, who had first drunk heavily in an inn, forced their way into a house where a communist worker lived and literally trampled him to death in front of his aged mother. When all the bestial details of the crime had been disclosed in court and the death sentence had been passed on some of the criminals, Hitler openly came to their defence and in a letter described them as my comrades. They were pardoned by the Papen government. Immediately after March 5, 1933, that is, even before the general amnesty, these murderers were amnestied by Hitler and again let loose upon the working class. The Murders and How They Are Hushed Up as in all other sections of this book, we rely in this chapter only on material which has been carefully checked up. The main sources are accounts of eyewitnesses and reports published by the press in Germany which has been brought into conformity. These press reports not only reveal the murders but also show the methods used to hush them up, methods which unintentionally often provide proof of the crime. In the month of March 1933, reports of political murders still appeared in the press as a result of the initiative of the reporters. But in spite of the fact that the only surviving newspapers had been brought into conformity, so many reports of murders began to appear that they became dangerous for the Hitler government. In the course of April, the reporting of murders was taken out of the hands of the press itself, and even of the local censors appointed by the Hitler government. The following announcement was issued by the Wolf Telegraph Bureau. 
Berlin, 2nd of April. Wolf Telegraph Bureau. The government has advised all news agencies that reports on incidents in Germany, particularly reports on conflicts arising out of the Jewish boycott, must not be published without express sanction from the press department of the Reich government. No alteration of the wording of the report, as passed for publication, is permitted. As a result of this centralisation of the censorship, a concrete picture of incidents is seldom given, and if any details appear, they are almost certain to be contradictory. There are many ways in which the incidents are dealt with so as to conceal the true facts. In the first place, bodies found are said to be of unknown persons. In most cases, the police can immediately identify such bodies as the dead persons have already been reported as missing or as having been taken away by force. But the reports do not disclose their identity. Secondly, a great number of murders are represented as suicides. The following report of the murder of Councillor Kresser of Magdeburg shows how clumsily the truth is concealed. Magdeburg, 14th March, TU. An incident resulting in bloodshed occurred late on Sunday evening at Felgeleben, near Magdeburg, at an inn which had been used as a voting station. The Social Democratic Councillor Kresser, who arrived at the inn from Magdeburg, was taken into custody by the police officers there at the request of a number of stormtroopmen. In another room, an argument developed between Kresser and a number of stormtroopmen, in the course of which Kresser fired a shot at the National Socialists, severely wounding the stormtroop leader Gustav Lehrmann. Everyone ran out of the inn, into which several shots were then fired from outside. Shortly afterwards, Kresser was found dead in the inn, with a bullet through his head. A post-mortem examination is now being carried out to establish whether Kresser, after his revolver attack, put an end to his own life, or whether he was killed by one of the shots fired into the inn from outside. The National Socialist Party press has a tendency to make such reports as sensational as possible. For example, the Volkischer Beobachter of April 25th presents one of the worst cases of lynching as suicide in the following terms. Terrible suicide, smeared with tar and burnt. A man living in a bungalow on the Hona Moor has committed suicide by a terrible method. He went into the tool house built onto his bungalow where there was a barrel of tar. After taking off some of his clothes, he smeared himself with tar and set fire to the barrel. He died in the fire which resulted. The motive of the suicide was melancholia. The bungalow was completely burnt down. The suicide was a married man with several children. The third method is to ascribe to natural causes deaths which take place in hospital as a result of Nazi brutalities. In a number of cases, for example that of Dr. Eckstein of Breslau, the report is used to slander the individuals after their death. References to venereal diseases are made to discredit the victims. The fourth method is to suggest that the motive of the crime was not political. In such cases, naturally, no details of persons or motives are given, as, for example, the following report published in Germania of May 15, 1933. A police report states that on Saturday evening, Hensler, a slater, was forced by several persons to accompany them to number 21 Lessingstrasse. Shortly afterwards, the neighbours heard a number of shots. Hensler was found in the loft, severely wounded, and taken to hospital, where he died within a short time. The criminals escaped without being recognised. 
The fifth method is the use of a formula which, since the murder of Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, has had a quite definite and unambiguous meaning. The formula, shot while trying to escape. Here is a typical case told in the officially published reports. The Frankfurter Zeitung of April 5 publishes the following report from Dusseldorf, dated April 4, Wolf Telegraph Bureau. The communist leader Bassler, who has evaded arrest for a considerable time, was located this morning by auxiliary police officers. During the search, the arrested man made use of a moment when he was not under observation to attempt an escape. As he would not stop, in spite of repeated warnings, the officers made use of their weapons. Bassler was seriously wounded by a bullet and died after being taken to hospital. The Angriff of April 5, publishes the following message from Dusseldorf, dated April 5. The police state that on April 4, at about 4pm, the communist official Bassler was arrested in his flat by protective corpsmen. In the search of his flat, two packets of dynamite were discovered. Documents were also confiscated. On the way to the police station, Bassler made an attempt to escape. He did not stop, in spite of being summoned to do so several times and continued to run after warning shots were fired. He was severely wounded by a shot in his back and died shortly after being taken to hospital. In actual fact, Bassler's home was surrounded during the night. He was brought out early in the morning and shot in the street. The contradictions in the official reports are clear. The dynamite was not found, but invented. Reduction in the number of political murders the Deutsche Allgemeine Zeitung of May 6, 1933, published the following, under the heading, Great Reduction in the Number of Political Murders Since the National Government Took Power. The following statement is official. The Prussian Premier and Minister of the Interior, Goering, announces through the Chief of the Secret Police Department that there has been a marked reduction since the National Government took power in acts of violence with fatal results arising from political motives. Almost simultaneously with the taking of power by the national government, the effective defence measures taken by the new government, together with the relaxing of political tension as a result of the victory of the national movement, brought about a rapid fall in the number of fatal cases which had previously been mounting steadily, and has now reached its lowest point for a long time, with only two fatal cases in April of this year. At about the same time as the Hitler government issued this transparent announcement, it was also officially announced that during the month of April, 46 bodies had been brought to the Berlin mortuary alone, with their features mutilated beyond recognition. During the month of April, the fascist press itself reported 50 political murders, the names being given in each case. We now give details of a number of cases, giving the sources of information in each case. Shot while trying to escape. We have already quoted the reports published in the Frankfurter Zeitung and the Angriff in connection with the death of Heinz Bassler. Bassler had been a member of the National Socialists and a stormtroop leader. In December 1930, he began to understand the real policy of the Nazis and left the National Socialist Party, later joining the Communist Party. This was the reason why he was murdered. The following letter shows how he was done to death. If only our dear Heinz was still alive. I can't realise it, but God will revenge this crime. This crime was no German deed. In the morning, that is, Tuesday morning about four, we were roused by seven protective corpsmen and two detectives. We were kept quiet with revolvers. 
Heinz had to dress and go with them. We had to lock the doors and were not allowed to open the windows. Oh, God, how roughly they treated our Heinz. They closed off the street as early as three o'clock, and at four they came up. And then they took him with them, and they shot him in the street. Martial law! Oh, what he must have suffered, the poor lad! I wish I had gone with him. He had three shots through his heart, one in his arm, one in his neck, one in his pelvis, and two others besides, eight shots in all. Then they left him lying there, and some peasants found him like a dog. I can't believe it. I went running to Herr M. in the morning, for Heinz told me, go at once to him and tell him, for Weitzel has pledged himself to help me. But what help did he give? Heinz trusted people too much. Frau Lena, if you could have seen Heinz now on the death bier, you would have called God to judge. They had treated him so brutally. I can't forget what he looked like. How can anyone treat a poor, harmless human being so brutally? And then the lies in the newspapers, that Heinz had been shot while trying to escape, and that they had found two packets of dynamite. Such meanness. And it's not possible to get any justice done. Not even a pistol or a piece of paper of any importance did they find. And then the papers write such a provocation. But I call God in heaven to judge for such a cruel and mean crime. Everyone is so overwhelmed by this crime, they can't believe it, that these people should shoot down a person by himself, so mean and brutal. The funeral is Saturday afternoon at half-past one at the South Cemetery. Heinz will be buried by the clergyman, and many, many people will come with him on his last journey. When I went to Herr M., how he treated me, when I said to him, how can anyone shoot a helpless man like that, he answered, if you say much more, I'll have you arrested too. I'll shoot you down. About 6 p.m. on March 6th, Greta Messing, a working woman, married and with two children, left her home in the summer Mullenweg in Selb, Bavaria, and went towards the town to do some shopping. About 40 yards from her home, she met a national socialist of the name of Lager, who lived in the same street. He got in front of her and provoked her by saying, Heil Hitler! Frau Messing rejoined, rot front, and tried to pass him. Lager stopped her and threatened her with his revolver, saying, I'll shoot you down. She answered calmly, shoot away. Lager put his browning to the woman's throat and pulled the trigger. Frau Messing was mortally wounded. Her husband carried her back to her home, and there she bled to death. The murderer went to the Nazi inn, drank some liquor, and then handed himself up to the auxiliary police. He was put under arrest. Ten days later, he was released. A guard of honour met him at the station in Selb. Lager was not expelled from the stormtroops. On the other hand, the husband and 19-year-old son of the murdered woman are in a Bayreuth penitentiary under protective arrest. Police and auxiliary police carried out repeated searches in working-class houses in Selb. They were not looking for a criminal, nor for a murderer, but for a photograph which was documentary proof of the murder. This photograph is printed here. Three Bodies in the Machnauer Forest On March 11, 1933, the whole press reported the finding in the Machnauer Forest of three bodies of young persons who had been shot, but whose identity was unknown. In spite of the fact that the police had all particulars, these were withheld from the public. The three youths were Fritz Nietzschmann, upholsterer, born at Oldenburg, March 1, 1909, then living in Berlin. His parents did not belong to any party, nor did he. Hans Balschkukat, a worker, born August 28, 1913, in Berlin, living in Berlin, 
member of the Red Aid Organization. Prouss, 23 years of age, living in Berlin. We have received the following information with regards to Fritz Nietzschmann. At 9.30pm on March 8th, Nietzschmann was walking with his fiancée towards his home. When they reached the corner of the Stubenrach Erdmannstrasse, a red car came over the Siegfried Bridge and crossed to the left side of the empty street. Two men in stormtroop uniform, the chauffeur was in civilian clothes, jumped out of the car and came towards Nietzschmann and his fiancée, calling out, Halt! Stand still! You must come and have your papers examined. Nitschmann said quietly, You must have made a mistake. To which the Nazis replied, Shut your mouth and get in. Nitschmann did as he was told, as he felt that he had nothing to worry about. His fiancée, who also belongs to no party, wanted to get into the car with him, but was pushed roughly away by the Nazis, who told her that Nitschmann was only being taken to be identified, and that nothing would happen to him. His fiancée, who was crying after being pushed away, did not note either the number of the car or the number on the collar of the Nazis. The car drove through the Stubenrauchstrasse and turned into the Hauptstrasse. Immediately after his arrest, Nitschmann's fiancée went to his mother and told her what had happened. From there, she went to the police station in the Krimhildestrasse and stated the facts. There she was told, Nothing will happen to him. He will be back soon. Come again tomorrow. At 8am on March 9th, his mother went to the same police station and was told the same thing. She was, however, told that during the night, inquiries had been made at all police stations and that Nitschmann had not been brought into any. She was to come again at noon. At noon, his father went to the police station and reported him as missing. Up to March 11th, Nitschmann's parents heard nothing from the police. At 9am on that date, police officers arrived with the information that the Berlin Morgenpost had reported that three bodies had been found in the Machnauer forest. From the description given, Nitschmann's father thought that one of these must be his son, and he went to the police station where, however, he could not yet get any further information. At noon, the father went to the police headquarters and spoke to the inspector who was dealing with the case. The inspector, who did not then know that Nitschmann had been carried off by stormtroop men, told the father that in all his experience he had never come across such a brutal murder. After the father had given all details, the inspector stated that he and his officers would do everything they could to discover the criminals. The father identified his son in the mortuary, in the presence of the inspector. The body showed ten bullet wounds, eight in the back, one in the neck and one in the jaw. Permission to take a photograph of the body was refused. Cremation also was not allowed, in view of the possibility of expert examination being necessary. Up to March 15th, the criminal department had not yet authorised the handing over of the bodies to their families. Two persons independently approached Nitschmann's father and gave the number of the car in which Nitschmann had been carried off as IA78087. Both also stated that it was a red car. With regard to Hans Balschukat, the following information is in our possession. On March 8th, Balschukat was arrested at the entrance of Gottenstrasse 14 in Schonenberg by three National Socialists with drawn revolvers, who carried him off in a dark car. On March 10th, his father received a postcard with the following. I have today found a purse with contents. Please come for the purse on Saturday, March 11th at 6pm. Hans Schmidt, Bornstedt by Potsdam, Victoria Strasse 26. 
When the card arrived, Bauschukat's father was not at home, and his mother took it to the police, who told her that she should not in any circumstances go to Bornstedt. At the same time, they telephoned to Bornstedt and to the detectives who were then investigating the crime in the Machnauer forest. The purse was taken charge of by the criminal department. That same day, the father also went to the police, who told him that he must not go to Bornstedt, that the man who alleged that he had found the purse had already been arrested, as he was suspected of the crime, in view of the fact that the purse showed no sign of having been lying about. On March 11th, the father saw his son's body. He could not identify him at first, as the body was terribly disfigured. The lips were swollen and blue, the chin battered in, and there were blue patches on the neck and larynx and chest, apparently caused by violent kicks. The arms and chest had a number of swollen patches, which were evidently the result of the lad having been tied up. From the father's superficial examination, he was not allowed to examine the body carefully, the murdered lad had had six or seven bullets through him, two at the back of his head, one through his temple, two or three in his right arm, and a shot through his chest. No details can be secured with regard to the murder of Prouse, as his father refuses to give any information. Steel Rods and Spirits of Salt Grote Hene, a telegraph fitter, was a member of the Reichsbanner, but held no political office of any kind. On Monday, March 27th, he was visited by storm troop men, who insisted on his coming with them to the storm troop quarters. When he did not come home after some considerable time, Frau Grotohene went to the stormtroop quarters, and just as she was asking one of the Nazis to release her husband, Grotohene was brought out into the street, little more than a bleeding lump of flesh. Several men brought him home. He complained of internal pains as well as external injuries. Grotohene was able to tell what had been done to him. His clothes had been taken off, and he had been beaten with steel rods for three hours, from time to time being made to wipe the blood from the floor with his own clothes. When he was lying almost unconscious, the Nazis tried to pour spirits of salt between his clenched teeth. As they did not succeed in doing this, they then forced his teeth apart, tearing away a part of his upper lip in doing this. Grotohene died on April 29th, after terrible suffering. An official post-mortem was held, and the cause of his death was certified as apoplexy and internal burns. The case was referred to the criminal department, but up to the present none of the criminals have been followed up. Beaten, stabbed and trampled on. On March 28th, the communist Edom of Robertstrasse 6, Königsberg, was carried away from his home at midnight. As it was known that he was a friend of the communist Reichstag deputy Schutz, he was beaten for two hours in such a brutal way that he lost control of himself and told the Nazis where Schutz was living. At 2.30am, Schutz was brought to the same Nazi barracks and there beaten, stabbed and trampled on for 12 hours. On the evening of March 29th, Schutz died in hospital, the cause of death being given as heart failure. On April 3rd, Schutz's body was put into the ground like a dog's. His death was not reported in any German paper. The doctors and nurses who had attended him were forced by threats to say nothing. In the meanwhile, Frau Schutz had been arrested. After her husband had been buried, she was compelled to sign an undertaking to say nothing of what had happened. The Nazis took Schutz's 12-year-old son to see his father's mutilated body, and one of them said to him, You will have the same fate if you follow in his footsteps. Lynched in Prison the three following official reports on the case of Schum are enough to expose the methods used by the fascist news agencies. 
1. Kiel 1, April, T.U. At about eleven o'clock, a dispute arose in front of the Jewish furniture shop kept by Shum, in the course of which the son of the Jewish shopkeeper attacked a protective cause man. When one of his comrades came to the latter's help, a fight developed between the two protective cause men and the shopkeeper who rushed up, and his son, in the course of which a shot was fired, which seriously wounded in the chest the protective cause man Walter Asthalter, twenty-two years old, of Kiel. The facts were as follows. In the course of the boycott of Jewish shops, a stormtroop gang occupied the furniture shop kept by Shum. The shopkeeper was molested by the Nazis, and his son, a lawyer, tried to protect him. A dispute arose, and then a tussle, in the course of which a shot was fired by one of the Nazis, which seriously wounded another of the stormtroop men. 2. Kiel, 1 April, WTB the son of the proprietor of the Shum furniture shop, who in the morning had fired some shots at a stormtroop man in front of his father's shop and wounded him severely in the stomach, has been shot in the police cell to which he had been brought. It is reported that a number of persons went to police headquarters and demanded that the door of Shum's cell should be opened, and when this was not done, several shots were fired which killed him on the spot. The body was conveyed to the medical institute. This second report is already improved to make it appear that Shum, who was absolutely unarmed, had not only fired the shot, but some shots. The report gives the circumstances of the murder of Shum accurately enough, but without expressly stating that the Nazis concerned murdered him to get a witness of the morning's crime out of the way. But both of these reports were so transparent that that same afternoon the Central Press Bureau intervened and produced the following account, which is false in every particular. 3. Kiel, 1 April, WTB. The Jewish lawyer and commissioner for oaths, Shum, at 11.30 this morning, shot a protective cause man of the name of Walter Asthalter in the stomach. According to information so far to hand, the shooting which took place in the Kiedenstrasse was without any plausible ground. The protective cause man died in the clinic. An enraged crowd of people assembled in front of the police jail before the removal of Shum, which had been ordered by the authorities, could be effected. The enraged crowd forced its way into the prison where Shum was killed by revolver bullets. The whole incident developed so quickly that the police could do nothing to stop it. The crowd also forced their way into the shop kept by Shum's father in the Kadenstrasse and destroyed the stock. How the Mine Workers' Leader Albert Funk Was Murdered on April 16, the mine workers' leader, Albert Funk, was recognised by a National Socialist in Dortmund and denounced to the police. Albert Funk had for many years played a leading part in the struggles of the mine workers. He was formerly a communist member of the Reichstag and leader of the United Mine Workers Union. Funk was put into the Dortmund police prison. He succeeded in getting out a letter reporting the terrible brutalities inflicted on seven other prisoners. He himself was not brutally treated at first. The papers said not a word about his arrest. This was enough to arouse the gravest fears. On April 26th, after ten days in prison, Albert Funk was murdered. His wife came to the prison to ask to see him and was told that she could not because he had poisoned himself in his cell. This was on April 28th. On the next day, April 29th, the press of the Rohr district published sensational disclosures about alleged discoveries of arms, dynamite dumps, terrorist groups, etc., of the communists in the Recklinghausen area. And in this connection, it was reported that the communist Reichstag deputy Albert Funk, who had been arrested, had made an insane attempt to escape from the Recklinghausen prison by jumping from the third floor window into the courtyard.
that he had broken his spine, arms, and legs, that he had been taken fully conscious to hospital, where he died shortly afterwards. Nothing was said about Funk having been in prison for two weeks, and naturally not a word of explanation was given as to how he was suddenly transported from Dortmund to Recklinghausen. Albert Funk had been driven almost out of his mind by horrible tortures, and his tormentors then forced him to throw himself out of the window. When some of the murdered man's imprisoned comrades who were in the courtyard at the time cried out in horror, the murderers shouted down to them, You Moscow swine can come and jump after him. Literally torn to pieces. A witness reports, Early in March, Fritz Gumpert of Heidenau was arrested, he was accused of having buried munitions and arms. He was taken to the Königstein fortress and thence to the concentration camp at Hohenstein. There he was put in chains and tortured. He was so appallingly ill-used that he died. His wife was informed that he had died of internal hemorrhage. Workers in the Heidenau factories collected money to bring the body to Heidenau. This was permitted, but on the express condition that the coffin should not be opened. The workers did not observe this condition. None of the eyewitnesses will ever forget the sight. Gumpert's face had been completely torn to pieces. As far as they could tell, his tongue was missing. Traces of heavy chains were visible on his arms. The back of the body was a lump of flesh that had been cut in pieces and was full of holes. The spine was broken, the sexual organs were lacerated. The right thigh was torn open. The pit of the stomach had been kicked in so that the intestines were protruding. The lips showed how the victim had bitten into them to endure the appalling tortures he had suffered. Horrified and enraged workers gathered round, and the stormtroop men used this as an excuse to confiscate the body again. A number of police and doctors came up, and a raid was conducted on the working-class houses in order to confiscate photographic apparatus and films. All witnesses were threatened with the severest penalties if they spoke of the case. Those who were known to have seen the body were warned to keep their mouths shut. On Friday, April 28th, the funeral took place. Some 3,000 working men and women went to take part, but all approaches were barred by stormtroops armed with rifles. When the cemetery gates were reached, the Nazis attacked the procession, and only the relatives were allowed in the cemetery. A clergyman wearing the swastika spoke at the graveside. St. Bartholomew's Night in Köpenick in many German towns, the Nazi stormtroops have carried out the Night of the Long Knife, foretold by Hitler before his advent to power. On the night of June 21st to 22nd, the Nazis began a series of murders, which lasted several days, in Köpenick, a suburb of Berlin. The victims were officials of the Social Democratic Party, of the Reichsbanner and of the Communist Party. On June 21st, the stormtroops twice searched the house of a trade union secretary, Schmaus, in Köpenick. They stated that they were looking for arms. During the night, the stormtroop men came a third time, arrested Schmaus's son-in-law, who was a communist, and then stormed the house, firing a number of shots. Schmaus had a feeble-minded son, 22 years of age, who was wakened by the shooting, picked up a revolver, and went to oppose the Nazis. His mother shouted to him in alarm, Don't shoot! But the son shot at and mortally wounded two of the Nazis who had forced their way in. Then the slaughter began. Schmaus's son-in-law, Rakowski, was immediately shot by the Nazis in front of the house. Schmaus's son was arrested and brutally done to death. Schmaus himself was hanged by the Nazis in his house. Frau Schmaus was accused of having told her son to shoot, and was so brutally ill-used that she died a few days later. 
that night Marxists were arrested throughout Köpenick and Friedrichshagen. Among them were the Reichsbanner leader and former premier of Mecklenburg, Johannes Stelling, the 55-year-old Paul von Essen, who was an official at the Reichsbanner, and Assmann, 57 years of age, who had been the Reichsbanner leader in Friedrichshagen. A social democratic eyewitness gives the following account of what happened to the prisoners in the Nazi barracks. We were taken by car to the Köpenick prison. The square in front was filled with stormtroopmen who wanted to attack us as soon as they saw us. The stormtroop leader, however, shouted, Stop! Don't hit them in the street! But we were hardly inside the building when they began to attack us. We were driven up the stairs and along a long passage. In a long cell there were ten comrades standing with their faces to the wall. The floor and wall were already spattered with blood. An old woman with blood streaming from her mouth and nose and her clothes spattered with blood was forced to scrub the floor. One of the stormtroopmen asked me, Do you know this whore? I looked at her more closely and saw with horror that she was my wife's mother. Then the Nazi told Comrade Kaiser to strike another comrade in the face. When Kaiser hesitated, he hit him such a blow with his fist that he went staggering to the wall. Then the comrades were forced with blows from sticks to hit each other until they were bleeding. After that, we had to run the gauntlet about ten times through lines of storm troopmen armed with sticks and truncheons. In the course of this, some of the older comrades collapsed. Meanwhile, the 55-year-old Paul von Essen was brought in, and the Nazis greeted him with howls of joy. He had been unemployed for a long time and had just come out of hospital. He was blind in one eye. He took part in the war, and he had four children. The first hit him in the face, then pulled down his trousers and beat him with really insane fury, with sticks and truncheons, until he lost consciousness. Comrade von Essen has since succumbed to the terrible injuries his torturers inflicted on him. Then we were each taken to a cell and beaten. The brutalities were repeated regularly every hour. Finally, I was taken to the leader for examination, and in my despair I denied that I was a Marxist. He then ordered that I should not be beaten meanwhile, but if it turned out that I had told a lie, I was to be shot. Shortly afterwards the door of my cell was flung open, and a stormtroop leader rushed in with other stormtroop men and beat me, shouting, You scoundrel, we'll finish you off today. I was then dragged along the passage to my mother-in-law's cell, and while two of the Nazis held me, the old woman, who was fifty-three years of age, was beaten with sticks until she lay quiet on the floor. She is now out of her mind and in an asylum. This eyewitness did not recognise either Stelling or Usman among the prisoners. Some days later, Stelling's body, covered with wounds and sewn up in a sack, was taken out of the Finnov Canal. At the same time, two other unknown bodies were recovered. Eleven other men were missing. On July 12th, people in Friedrichshagen heard that Asman's body had also been found. And so, also throughout Germany, at the time when Hitler was more and more openly acting on behalf of the rich capitalists of Germany, the number of murders was rising. End of chapter 10